bowl full of Swedish fish right here. At, yes, feel free, pass them around. So I have a theory. Am I going to hear my theory? Okay, thanks, Johnny. Uh, Johnny, my theory is that uh, if you are a person who has spent any time at all on a boat in the water or on a canoe or in a kayak, you are a person who has a boat story. And by boat story, I mean you went through some challenging thing. Things didn't play out as you had hoped. Maybe you faced some adversity. The only people that don't have a boat story, I believe, are people that have not spent any time in a boat. I tested that theory out a couple months ago at our, uh, the table community meal on Wednesday night. And I asked the question as just a conversation starter, share your boat story if you have one. And it was so fun that night to listen to all of the boat stories. Uh, if I invited you to share, raise your hand, would you have a boat story to share? I think there's a lot more people than just what raised their... You're afraid I'm going to call on you, aren't you? <laughs> you know me by now. I, I can't not share this boat story with you because it's also a fishing story. So my, my boat slash fishing story comes from Elk Rapids, Michigan. Karen and I lived uh, in Elk Rapids, and we lived on a small lake called Bass Lake, and we had a, a canoe, and so I just loved to go fishing out in my canoe. And one day, Karen's mom, Nancy, was visiting with us, and we went out in the canoe together. Nancy was in the front of the canoe. I was in the back of the canoe, and we paddled across the lake to my favorite fishing spot. And, and I hadn't cast but a few times, and I, I caught a, a great northern. You know, 24-inch, it's not huge for a northern, but, but a, a nice northern, and I reeled it in, and as I'm trying to take the lure out of the northern's mouth, it flipped like northern do, and a loose treble hook caught into my thumb. And so now I've got a wiggling northern suspended from a treble hook in my thumb. And I panicked. And, and so with my loose hand, I, I grabbed the northern. I'm trying to hold it as still as possible. And I told Nancy, you're going to have to paddle us back because I, I can't let go of this fish. And because I panicked, she panicked, and she started rowing as hard as she could on one side of the canoe. <laughs> and so in the middle of Bass Lake, there we were going around in circles. And that is, that's my boat story, fish story, and I'm sticking to it. We're continuing this morning in our uh, series through the Gospel of Mark. And where we left off last week, Jesus just performed this amazing miracle. There's 10,000 women, children, men, and, and they're hungry, and he has a few fish and a few loaves of bread, and he performs this miracle and feeds everybody. And immediately after that, he tells his disciples to get into a boat and to sail to Bethsaida. Virtually every time Jesus tells his disciples to get into a boat, what follows is a boat story. Like you would almost think the disciples would get to the point and say, Jesus, if it's okay with you, could we just walk? Like we, we know how this is going to play out. 
So that is where we're going to pick up the story today. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's Word. Father, you have told us that your Word is profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every work that you have in store for us. So I ask that you would be uh, helping us to be attentive to your word today and receptive to what your spirit has for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking it up at Mark chapter 6, verse 45. So this is right after he has performed this amazing miracle. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is a passage that you have probably not heard a sermon from ever. And I'm going to say that is because Matthew's account of this story is so much more exciting. That whenever somebody preaches on this story, they choose Matthew's account. I look back at my records, I've never preached on the Mark version. I preached on the Matthew version three times. So the Matthew version adds this detail. After Jesus said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid, Peter called out to Jesus and said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said, and then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, crying out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? That's a sermon I imagine you've probably heard more than once. I remember John Ortberg's book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. That's a message that we'll preach. But Mark and also John, who also wrote an account of this story, both of them omitted this whole bit about Peter. And so the thing that I've been struggling this week is if you take Peter out of the story, Peter getting out of the boat, is there anything left of substance for us? And I came to the conclusion this week that that we often err in making all of this about Peter, about Peter getting out of the boat. So let's find out what there is once you take that out of the story, what's left for us. 
So to, to work our way into this passage, we actually need to go back to the shore to the 10,000 people. Jesus has just performed an incredible miracle. Remember, he asked the disciples to do something that was impossible. They said, send all the people away so that they can go get food. And Jesus turned to them and said, no, you feed them. And they said, Jesus, where are we going to get enough food to feed all of these people? It's impossible. And they're absolutely correct. It's impossible. And then Jesus prays, and suddenly these baskets that were once empty are all filled with fish and bread. And at the end, they, after serving 10,000 plus people, each disciple has a full basket of bread and fish. Here's the question I've been thinking about that uh, story. For whom did Jesus perform this miracle? Was it solely for the benefit of 10,000 hungry people that Jesus performed that miracle? I don't think so. In fact, I would guess that if there were a crowd of 10,000 people, most of them had no idea that a miracle even occurred. Remember, Jesus had the disciples have the people sit in groups of 100 and groups of 50. So there is just this enormous crowd. And at the very front of the crowd, with a simple prayer and a nod to heaven, Jesus performs this miracle, and now all of these baskets are full of, of fish and, and bread. The miracle wasn't for the, the benefit necessarily of just the, the 10,000. The miracle was for the benefit of the disciples. He had given them an impossible task. We can't do it. Then they looked to Jesus. They watched him pray, and they saw how Jesus performed this incredible miracle. This Jesus, he's more than just a mere human being. Consider the evidence that is mounting. He heals the sick. He casts demons out of people. He calms the storm. He even raises the dead back to life. And now he produces food out of thin air. If Jesus was on trial, accused of being divine, there is more than enough evidence to convict. Surely the, the disciples are starting to connect. This is God. He is God. Many years earlier, Moses stood before Pharaoh, and he commanded Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh refused. God performed miracles that came in the form of plagues. And after the first few plagues, Pharaoh brought in his own magicians who performed magic tricks. And they were actually able to mimic the plague that God had caused. Pharaoh's heart, we read, grew hard in unbelief towards this supposed God. But God's miracles, these plagues, they continued, and pretty soon the magicians couldn't keep up. There was no way to mimic what only God could do. The evidence was undeniable, but Pharaoh's heart was hard. And now, many years later, what we're about to witness in the story today is the fact that even though the evidence is undeniable, the disciples' hearts have actually become hardened. Jesus provided his disciples a front row seat, just like he had done for Pharaoh. 
they witnessed all of these miracles. They saw the empty baskets that were now full of fish and bread. They had every reason to believe that he was the Son of God. They had no reason to doubt. Well, we read, after feeding all of the people, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. The disciples got into the boat. Presumably, their baskets full of bread and fish are now at their feet, and they set off. And they're amazed by everything that they've just witnessed. They're talking about it, excited about what they've just experienced. The stage is set for a boat story. Meanwhile, Jesus is up on the mountainside praying. What's he praying about? Well, perhaps it's a, a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. God, thank you for glorifying your name by, by producing this bread and, and this fish. Maybe it's a prayer for strength, Lord. Help me continue the, the ministry you've laid out before me as Satan is assembling his forces, as the religious leaders are plotting to kill him. Lord, give me strength to carry this out. Maybe it's a prayer for those 10,000 people. Lord, we pray that this would be more than just a meal, that they wouldn't just understand that they, they were fed, but they would they would see me as the Messiah and not the Messiah to set them free from the Romans, but the Messiah who would set them free from their, their sins. Maybe he's praying all of those things, but I have no doubt, I'm absolutely certain that one of the things he's praying for is those disciples down in that boat. From Jesus' vantage point, up on the mountain, he could see them down on the lake. Verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. I want you to picture that in your mind. Jesus, high and lifted up on this mountainside, looking down far below at the disciples in this little boat, straining at the oars, sailing into a, an enormous headwind. As you know, sometimes the, the breeze is at our back. Uh, I like to do a, a lot of kayaking, and, and invariably the wind is always blowing. And, and so I have, um, I have the tactic of starting by paddling into the wind so that on the return trip back home, I can enjoy it a little bit more leisurely and let the, the wind carry me along. But invariably, when I get to that point of turning around, the wind has shifted, you know, or the wind has just completely died. And, and some people call this Murphy's Law, you know, if anything can go wrong, it will. I wonder if this is just simply not life on this side of heaven, that often the wind is not at our back. Often we find ourselves paddling into the wind. We go through these these seasons where we strain to, to navigate through life. Sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of a developing life story. Not a boat story, but a, a developing life story. And so there is Jesus, high, and lifted up on the mountain, looking down on his disciples who are going through this 
this boat story, these disciples, they're his plan. They're his plan to, to advance the kingdom, to proclaim his name, to build his church, the church that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against. And he sees them down there and they're struggling and they're straining by paddling into the wind. They're not alone. They don't know it, but, but his eye is on them. He sees them and he's even interceding for them. He's praying for them as they are down there struggling in that boat. So my theory that everybody has a boat story is just a theory. But what I know is that every single person has a life story. You have a life story. You have a story where you've had to face adversity, where you've had to paddle into the wind, where you've had to the challenge of navigating this life. That is the nature of being human. We all have a life story. And, and if we take this picture, what I think God is telling us is that we're not alone when we go through that life story. Sometimes it feels like we are. But there is Jesus high and lifted up, and he sees us, and he's even praying for us as we navigate that, that challenging story. Verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He's about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. So what we see here is Jesus is not just the high and lifted up one who watches from afar, who watches kind of unmoved and removed, but he's the God who comes down the mountain. He's the God who comes down and enters into our boat story, who enters into our life story. He came down from the mountaintop. He walked out onto the lake to them. They all saw him very clearly. It wasn't an apparition. They saw him. This is Jesus. They saw him clearly, but they figured he must be a ghost. Because after all, who can possibly walk on water? Do you see the disconnect? Why did they think he can heal the sick and he can cast demons out of people and he can even raise the dead? And we just saw him produce food out of thin air, but walking on water, come on. He must be a ghost, and they're terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and he said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Those words, it is I, would have been very special words to these Jewish men. These Jewish men raised on the stories of Moses raised on the story of Moses and the burning bush when God spoke to him and said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And Moses protested, if I go to the Israelites and, and say that God has sent me to deliver you, and they ask me, what is your name? What shall I tell them? And he said, tell them I am. The Hebrew I am is equivalent to the Greek ego eimi, or it is I. So what Jesus is saying to them is, is that God that you've always read about, that amazing God who performed all of those plagues and, and sheltered the Israelites during those plagues and then led them powerfully out of Egypt and 
split the Red Sea and fed them manna from heaven every single morning and, and brought water out of the rock, that God and, and me, we're, we're one. I am that God. I am not some lesser God. I am not inferior to that God. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to, to connect the dots that he is the, the Son of God. The disciples had witnessed so much, more than anybody else, but they still didn't get it. So listen to the conclusion of the story. Then he climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. We've come full circle they're completely amazed because they hadn't understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. In a way, the disciples were kind of like Pharaoh. That's an odd connection to make. Pharaoh despised Moses. Pharaoh hated this God who was bringing these plagues upon them. But, but Pharaoh's greatest crime was disbelief. And these disciples, they, they love Jesus, they're drawn to Jesus, they're amazed by Jesus, but they also have this disbelief going on. And as a result, their hearts are becoming hard. I think the question, so you take the Peter story out of this, and I think the question that we're left with is a really important question. It's what is the condition of my heart? If the disciples who have walked with Jesus, who have experienced things that we can only imagine and, and read about, if they had hard hearts, means that we all can have hard hearts. So how do you know if your, your heart is becoming hard? Well, I think Jesus gives us a few of the symptoms. Do not be afraid. Fear, this overwhelming fear that, that can rule our life, that's a symptom of a hard heart. Take courage, Jesus said. Living a, a small life, refusing to step out whenever God invites us out of the boat, it's a symptom of a hard heart. But I think the greatest symptom of a hard heart is simply the failure to invite Jesus into the boat into your boat story, into your life story. When you tell yourself, you know what, he, he doesn't see what's going on, or worse, he doesn't care about what's going on, or worse, he, he sees and cares, but he can't do anything about it. He can't come down the mountain. He's not capable of altering my life story. Those are all lies that we tell ourselves. God is the one who comes down the mountain because he cares, because he loves us. He enters our life story. And now as we go to the, the table, we celebrate how much he entered our story. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. And then because Jesus loved us, he went all the way to cro the cross. That's how much he entered our life story all the way to the cross. Dying on the cross in our place, three days later, rising again, defeating death and defeating 
sin. Our hope is in the name of the Lord. My prayer as we come to the the table this morning is that we would examine the condition of our hearts. Am I living in fear? Is there there's something that God's inviting me to do that I'm, I'm shrinking back because of a, a lack of courage? Or is there something going on in my life where I, I just have not invited Jesus into my life story because of any one of those lies that I might be believing? My prayer is that, that God today would soften uh, our hearts. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise. Join me as we pray. Father God, we, we want to say thank you. Lord, we know that we have done nothing to, to earn a spot at the table this morning. And Lord, I, I think of how we so often take that story and we make it all about Peter. Lord, how we're so prone to doing that, making it all about us and about our accomplishments and what we do. Lord, when the story is really about everything that you have done for us. And so, Lord, we come this morning acknowledging that, that we are sinners. We come this morning acknowledging how quickly our hearts become hard. And yet we do come because you've invited us. You've summoned us to this table. You've loved us. You've died for us. We were lost and now we're found. Lord, we come remembering what you had to do to find us, how you suffered and died on the cross for our sin, and then you rose again on the third day. We come to meet with you, and we ask that you might fill us with your Holy Spirit. And we come believing that this is a foretaste of the banquet that we're one day going to enjoy in the company of the saints and the angels. Father God, send your Holy Spirit upon us. Soften our hearts. And the bread which we break and the cup which we bless, may it be the communion of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.